I'm Chris. And I'm Owen. And this is the Dead Wargamer Society. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in again to the Dead Wargamer Society. Today we have an episode we've talked about a few times and hinted at was uh, coming, and very happy to uh, have this done. We have two special guests with us, Brian and Walter, who are two members of the Clan War community, who are here to uh, have a discussion with us about some points they think that we maybe didn't get all the way right uh, in our our last episode, which is a polite way to say they, they, they object to some of the things we said, and uh, we're going to have a conversation about that. Um, all cards on the table... Walter and Brian were kind enough to record this back in July, and unfortunately someone, not naming names, me, uh, lost the episode, and they have kindly agreed to come back and record with us again. Um, To their great credit, they actually enlightened me quite a bit on uh, what we got wrong the first time around. It was a really good conversation. You're going to hopefully hear that again, but the first time I think there was a little bit more surprise and maybe a little bit more conflict than you're going to hear this time, because it's probably going to be a lot of, oh yeah, now that I see that, I totally agree. (laughs) So uh, apologies if if it sounds like I'm I'm just yes-manning everything, but this is a conversation we've had before, and uh, they they were very compelling in their arguments, so I think we will... uh, Probably be maybe less dramatic and exciting than some people were hoping for. Makes a little bit worse radio, but it's the truth, and uh, that's what we're here to do. So with that uh, gigantic caveat out of the way, let me introduce you to uh, Walter and Brian. You guys want to say hi? Uh, Yeah, hi. I'm Brian Sherry, and uh, I played uh, Clan War back in the late 90s when it first dropped. And uh, played it through to the early 2000s, right about to when it, you know, quote-unquote died. And uh, fell out of it, and just... Earlier this year, got the hankering to play it again and got involved with the Facebook group, uh, trying to do more to bring some excitement and some regular battle reports and questions and pictures and all that kind of stuff to the Northern Virginia area. Awesome. Walter, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, Walter, um, I got into Clan War when it first came out. Um, I played it uh, for about three years till it... uh, died uh, and then i discovered ebay and then really got into ebay and started buying a lot of the old clan war models that i had had uh back around 2010 ish they're about uh, got a community going and playing it and then i moved from texas at that point and then here recently in about last year i have uh, gotten back into it and uh, started playing it regular again uh, the only difference is Prior times, I played first edition, but this last year, I've really dived deep into the Dumio edition. Great. Well, it's it's good that we got uh, a plurality of different experiences here. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate that you guys uh, have a lot more table time than Chris or I. Uh, you know, I have zero, and Chris has uh, some back when Limp Bizkit was on the radio. So uh, we we definitely uh, both could use some more uh, more more experience here uh, in the discussion. Uh, before we get to deep into the technicals here uh we usually talk about what we've been doing lately for our hobby stuff brian what have you been up to lately yeah uh the past you know as i said i got back into clan war probably in uh, late spring and putting together some armies for that um playing a bunch of games uh since we actually did the first recording i met up with a gentleman at historicon up in lancaster pennsylvania uh, in july Mm -hmm. and we played a, a nice long game uh shadowlands versus crab 
And uh, when I came back, uh, actually ran into a gentleman there at Historicon who's a local who wanted to play Clan War. Uh, another guy on the Facebook group uh, also playing Clan War wanted to play Clan War and lives, we've discovered, just you know, two towns over from me. So we now have five people uh, playing Clan War in my immediate vicinity. Um, one of my partners for Clan War uh, loves dead war games, Daria, and Daria's favorite dead war game is Wrath of Kings. So because I just didn't have enough to spend money on, uh, I also dove deep into Wrath of Kings recently, which uh, I think there's some pictures of my recent acquisitions and paint jobs on your uh, Discord channel. Yeah, there are. They they are awesome, and I, I would uh, I would implore anyone who's not currently on the Discord to uh, please join and check it out. We'll post a link in the show notes. Walter, how about you, man? From the our uh, the previous time we recorded, I, I played a couple of games of Clan War. I have a regular opponent, Aaron. But um, in the last month and a half, he, due to his uh, job, he works at the university. And that, since that started, we've, I've had to kind of put that on hold until he gets freed back up. But in the meantime, it just so happened on my wife's birthday, I got into the new Horus Heresy. Uh, so I've been kind of painting a little bit on Clan War and putting together uh, two legions for Horus Heresy. Nice. That's... Uh... That's that, that's quite the undertaking, man. Good luck. That's uh, n- n- no small feat. Chris, what have you been up to? Um, So I'm heading to Nova uh, tomorrow as of the time of this podcast. So I have been uh, I had been uh, kind of speed painting up some Necromunda because I've never played that before. And I'm trying to get some learning games in um, at the show. It seems like seems like a good time. Seems like a fun um kind of uh campaign style thing which i haven't had in a bit i uh have been stressed at work so i've been stressed buying a, a lot of minis um <laughs> so uh, i i have a lot of stuff on the paint table i'm not really sure what's coming up next i assembled some uh carnival uh strigoi recently i have some uh lore uh I think it's actually the Middle Earth strategy battle game. Elves coming in now. Um, I have a whole bunch of terrain uh, for Necromunda that I've been working on. And, uh, and another fun hobby side of things. I've actually been working with uh, Alo over at A-Case on designing a new style of case, which will hopefully be out later this year. I'm pretty psyched for it because it's going to better fit as a um, personal item for flights. Hmm. And also have some fun features for... Uh, being a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more um, wieldy to bring through like cons and travel and stuff like that. So lots of hobby stuff. What about you, Owen? I uh, I moved, so now I'm no longer a uh, Midwestern gentleman. I'm back on the uh, the Beast Coast. So uh, here in the house in Connecticut, got my hobby station set up and have been painting up a storm. I really missed it. So uh, it's getting to be that time of year where um, the fiance busts out the pumpkin spice and I spend a little bit more time indoors, less time on the bicycle. Um, I painted up a Necromunda gang. I should post that on the Discord in something like a 28, uh, quote-unquote 28 style. That got a, a lot of likes on my Instagram. I don't know if that's just because it's one of the few GW things I paint or if uh, people really like it. But regardless, I'm, I'm happy with how it came out. I've got some Wreck Age stalkers that I'm... Uh, sorry, drifters, excuse me, uh, that I'm, I'm painting up. I'm trying a few kind of weird paint experimentation things. I'm doing them, trying to emulate some of the style of uh, a painter I really like from Ireland named Francis Bacon. A little bit of an, um, I guess I call it modern thing. Uh, it's a bit weird. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if I'm going to share that with people because it may just fall on its face, but it's been a fun exercise. Then I've got some alchemy. I've got some confrontation. I've got... Uh, 
I've got too many things. I've been trying to, to talk myself down from spending hundreds of dollars and stuff that uh, is just going to go in the closet and I may or may not ever paint. So uh, try to take it one step at a time, but really enjoying uh, having the ability to paint again. So that has been fun. But enough about me. Let's talk about Clan War. So uh, for listeners that uh, maybe are, are just coming back to this or have come to this late, we did an episode earlier in our career about Clan War. And Chris and I both enjoy the concept of the game but we didn't strongly recommend it or recommend it as strongly as something like dark age or eden we got a lot of feedback from the episode which surprised us uh given that we didn't expect there to be a large clan war community but uh there is a a passionate uh, group of people that still really enjoy the game there are some really unique things about the game uh and we wanted to give them a chance to come on and uh let them explain why they thought we got a few things wrong we're, we're happy to have that discussion so we already introduced brian walter thank you so much for being here and we wanted to give them a chance to just bring up a few things that they thought that we didn't maybe get 100 percent right so just to give listeners an idea of the format we're going to alternate between walter and brian to discuss things that that they could have gotten right and wrong. Just to make sure this isn't a complete mess, I'll probably call on people just to kind of keep things flowing cleanly. And we'll just have a little back and forth and discussion here. Last time we did this, I thought it was really productive and fun. So hopefully uh, hopefully that works again. So we'll start off with Walter. Uh, Walter, what's something you thought that we uh, didn't maybe get 100% right in our our last episode? Uh, The initiative phase. I think that that is probably one of the uh, fundamental phases of Clan War that makes it very unique. Um, when you actually read it versus when you apply it, it's it's one of those things where it's two completely different experiences. Uh, uh, to recap, um, you take each unit that you have and you roll a d10, and then you place that die next to each unit. Then the commander of that particular unit can adjust it based, uh, up or down, plus or minus, based upon their command value. And then you have your general that can focus, even if he's a commander of a unit, he can focus on, on any other unit and then adjust it even further. And then after that's done, you start from the lowest number and work your way up uh, for activation. Now, in the early parts of the game, or um, you just you don't really go into that much in depth of doing it. You just roll your dice uh, per se and just kind of take it in order. But where it really shines is it builds up the tension of the game. You may have a card in your hand uh, to where you can counterattack, so you want to go after your opponent, but you don't really know what they're going to roll or how they're going to adjust it, and that's going to be the next turn. So you have to, it forces you to think ahead, at least by one turn, and sometimes even two turns uh, down the road. Uh, so it, I think the initiative phase, other than kind of give it a, a, a fog of war, it builds the tension. And I think that that's one of the key aspects of Clan War uh, has versus a lot of other games from the past or even present. You just don't have that tension like you do with Clan Wars because... You know, I I could be playing Brian, you know, he could have something to where he wants to charge, but he doesn't know if he's going to get the initiative roll off on me next turn. He has to be within a certain, say, four inches. So is he going to, is he going to move his unit closer or is he going to keep his unit stationary or is he going to try to move it away? 
it, you, it really makes you think tactically. And I think that that's one of the key aspects of clan war. Right on. Uh, Brian, anything to add to that before Chris and I respond? Yeah, um, I think, first of all, I want to say thanks a lot for having us and really appreciate uh, getting a chance to you know give a, a our positive uh, spin on clan war. Uh, I'm not going to say that the game is perfect. Uh, there's definitely... Uh, some areas of it that could use some polish, or um, in the in the uh, uh, in the words of a famous games workshop designer, there are parts of it that could have you know been quote quote murdered to make the design more efficient. <laughs> um, but uh, I do think it's a really enjoyable game. Um, first of all, you do have to like magical samurai. Um, if you're not into samurai fantasy settings, which I think is one of the reasons why it was never going to be a Warhammer killer. Um, if you're not into those that kind of samurai fantasy setting, then it's going to be of limited appeal to you. But if you are, then I think it's a great game for you. Um, as far as initiative phase goes, it's an interesting design. Again, it is a bit, I, I think if you guys might have said it was a bit clunky, I think that's true. Um, I think it's an interesting compromise between, it's definitely not I go, you go, right? Mm -hmm. you move all my models, you move all your models, which there's really little no interaction and allows for kind of an alpha strike thing, which is a big problem in some modern designs, I might mention. Um, it's not exactly alternating activations either. Um, it, I liken it a bit to uh, the bolt action system where you draw the order dice out of the bag. Uh, like for each unit that you have, you put an order die in a bag and then you pull them out. Now, what does happen sometimes in uh, that system is you get five or six of the same color all, all in a row, which means one person does get kind of alpha struck. Um, this is much more of a moderation of that idea. Uh, and then it, it because of that, there's a little bit of complexity to it. And as Walter said, in the first couple of turns, it's not going to matter too much. Once you're about to engage, it becomes very important. And you have an idea of when your units will go, um, and you can manipulate it so much based on their battle skills um, and the general's battle skill. But the dice rolls are, are going to make that not totally reliable, right? So there's, there's sort of a... Um, mitigated chaos in the initiative system, uh, which is interesting because it simulates some command and control friction, uh, but without... It, I've never seen it any way go that, like, one side basically gets to go all at once and the other side um, doesn't, you know, gets stuck. That's very rare because of that dice um, mechanic. And another thing that I think is really unique about the game is that you also have a deck of cards. And if you have a card that you don't feel is useful, you can use the focus value at the bottom of the card to modify various different things. And one of the things you can modify is the initiative uh, role on a particular unit as well. So, you know, it it is a very important mechanic for this game, so much so that you also have a, a clan, the Scorpion clan, to where every unit they have can do an additional modification where the other clans can't do it as well. But I just wanted to... Uh, mentioned about the uh, focus value and uh, the uh, whole plan has a mechanic to modify it even more, to be more sneaky. Something that I think was mentioned the last time, which uh, I liked, was that uh, primarily when we were talking about the kind of more clunkiness of uh, some of this modification was in the beginning turns of the game. You know, when uh, people were still kind of, un you know, to use the term unboxing their army on the table. Um, and what uh, Walter had mentioned then is that generally 
it's almost like very gentlemanly in the first couple turns where like it's like all right we're just not going to modify this stuff you know like it's not it's not important at this point so to move the game along we're just we're going to move at the initiative value you know and um i think i think that does streamline it a little bit that does you know pull some of the unnecessary parts out of it and then once you get into engagements like where the majority of the armies engage there's really no point in modifying the the initiative dice it's it's more of a setup mechanic, setting up to engage or to receive a charge or to to maybe shoot uh, your range combat unit into another unit. So that's another thing that, you know, at the beginning, there might not be that much of a focus on modifying the dice, but also towards the mid to late stages of the game when the majority of the armies engage, you know, you're not going to really worry about modifying the, the initiative dice either for those particular units. I think um, I think you both raise really good points. I, I agree with Brian that this is a very interesting middle ground between a Games Workshop style I go, you go, and a conventional um, alternate activations. You know, one person goes, the other person goes. What I would say is I think there's a few loose ends that could have been filed off to make this a lot cleaner. Um, having the exploding tens, or to use the game's terminology, add rules added to the initiative to me is extra complexity that really isn't doing a whole heck of a lot. The other thing I think I'll say, and this is probably a comment for a number of the items you're going to bring up, is the rulebook had a interesting design philosophy in that I think sometimes it tried to explain every possibility, which is great in the sense that I don't need to try to track down a two-decade-old FAQ or rata to figure out how some interaction works, but it front-loads a lot of the complexity in ways that a game like Warhammer Fantasy or some of the more modern games don't necessarily do it's good but as someone coming completely fresh to the game i think there was a little bit of oh my gosh how how complex is <laughs> just just absolute uh, complexity shock uh at, at seeing the rules but from what, what i'm hearing from you is well yeah there's a lot of possibility but in practice it it's actually fairly clean so i'm i'm, I'm excited to try it in the tabletop i think i mentioned in the last episode i didn't mention at the front here I, i've committed to building an army i'm actually practicing some paint schemes for it now i was lucky enough to track down a few of the uh, generic troops that i'll be using for that so i'm grateful to have some of the, the vintage old uh, clan war led or sorry uh white metal on the force it, this is after lead um but uh I I do I do look forward to actually playing it because you guys play it you you guys probably know better than Chris or I at this point but uh, I I would say as someone coming completely new to it, it it was a little bit intimidating reading all the possible modifiers uh, just listed head on in, in the the Daimyo edition. I don't disagree uh, on that and it's a lot to read at once and when you play it on the table it becomes a lot faster. The other thing that they did, which I think is highly questionable, is they also decided to address how you deal with multiplayer situations all in the same text area. So yeah. you've got to dive through that. It would have been great if they just had like a section at the end on multiplayer battles and the modifications to keep the initial... You know, what it really needed probably was like a, a quick play guide in the introduction but but rather than do that they dive you into the the details so that's definitely um you know a formatting or layout um choice that i think could have been a lot better there is there's one thing uh, the curse of getting into a game that that is quote-unquote dead 
is uh, if you bought the second starter box uh, for the Demio edition uh, for Clan Wars, they had the basic rule book. Even though it's it's only ninety pages, but but it doesn't have a full army list. But you know it it has enough and it has a stripped down version of the rules to kind of get you going and get you to the feel of the game. And it takes away some of that complexity. But the only way that you can get that particular book and uh, is uh, through that starter box. And I think the the Demio Edition starter box is probably one of the hardest things to find uh, right now for Clan Wars. Right on. Good to know. Moving on to the next item, Brian, uh, what's something you'd like to tell? Yeah, so I think during the initial podcast, you guys did a great job uh, talking about the different lands uh and the lore which is very rich and um is sort of like a samurai days of our lives sort of never ending and involving a lot of very improbable deaths and resurrections and romances and everything um and actually one of the reasons i'm glad we had a chance to have this follow-up um discussion was that i think uh you you were talking so much about the lore we didn't get quite as much time to talk about the game one of the comments though about the the game was that um the complexity of the of the, of the rules um, in the different army lists uh, reflecting the lore of, of the game. And uh, my question, I guess, or response to that was, uh, you know, is it a bug or is it a feature? And I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit of both. It's more of a feature if you love Rokugan. So, for example, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that the design of this game was inspired by the design of the collectible card game. So mm-hmm. pretty much all the elements that were present in the collectible card game in terms of interactions are here. So you have you know combat, you have honor, you have dueling, you have dishonor, and all of those uh, concepts brought brought uh, were brought over into the into the game, which did you know add to the complexity that's that's in there. But um, if you do enjoy the lore and you enjoy the setting, it's really fun to see the distinctive character of the armies that uh, are represented uh, in, in their in their mechanics. So uh, as Walter mentioned, the Scorpion have a lot of tricks. They're like the underhanded trickster uh, clan, and so they have a lot of ways to do stuff that other clans can't do. Like they can all manipulate their initiative. They can uh, blackmail your uh, personalities. They have ninjas. They can have exploding traps. And those kinds of cards have a negative honor effect on your army, which will have an in-game effect if your honor below drops below zero. Um, so you do have to do a little bit of bookkeeping there. But that is, a, is a, just a very flavorful reflection of um, what the Scorpion can do. And they even went so far as to have a unit called the Shosaro Actors, which you could basically stick a unit from any other clan on the table and say, like, okay, this is an ally unit. You don't have to tell your opponent. It's not actually. So you can create a decoy unit, like let's say I, you know, allied in some unicorn heavy cavalry, and I just tell my opponent, like, this is my unicorn heavy cavalry. He won't know until I decide to reveal it or until there's a combat that I basically bought, like, a decoy unit. It's not really them. They don't have those stats. So there's a lot of that in there. Each clan, uh, as in the first episode, has its own distinctive approach to warfare, and in general, they're very well represented, and they do feel different in how they play. Right on. Walter, anything to add to that? Yeah, there's a... I think, too, when you look at it is... I know it did come from the card game. It was ported over very well. But I also think they did a very uh, good 
um, porting over of the role playing aspect of the game. The the game doesn't feel role play, um, but you can interject a, a character that you made from the role playing into it, and um, they have roles to to reflect that particular clan as well. But I I think Brian did a, a really good summary of of the uh, the feel of the game in that regard and how each clan is unique. So for me, and this is probably just a personal preference, I think that army scale games need to make some compromises in the level of complexity they have due to just how long they can take on fundamentals. I don't think it's unfair to say, based upon having built some armies on paper myself and having looked at battle reports, that outside of some corner cases, the average 2,000-point clan war game is going to take roughly between 50 and 80 miniatures to represent your force. You know, obviously Shadowland Goblin Horde is going to be higher. Uh, Elite Naga Force is going to be a little bit lower. But I'd say the average, you're you're looking 50 to 75, 80, pretty typically. That's a lot of dudes to take out of your case. That's a lot of dudes to move around. That adds a lot of time just on setup and shutdown. I'm not expecting something to be the simplest war game of all time because of this, and I'm not expecting every game to be Kings of War, which really does lean into the simplicity aspect. But even relative to something like Warhammer Fantasy Battles for its time, this was a game that really leaned heavily in complexity. It's nice. There is a ton of flavor in it. There's lots of options and opportunities, and it makes sense from a role-playing aspect I think from a gamey aspect, they could have done some easy things to keep the majority of the flavor, while maybe not necessarily being as true to the roleplay, giving most people what they want. So for example, thinking of the different maneuver options, there's several that really are, and I'm blanking on the name, I apologize, linked to a specific clan. There's a specific clan, basically back-up maneuver that the Crab Clan is particularly well-known for. All right, the Haruma Withdrawal. Now, anyone can do that if your commander has the defense ability, but it's at a pretty significant penalty. But the Crab or, um, have characters that have a special rule that allows them to do it with no penalty. To me, that's an easy thing. Make that a special rule. The crab can do this. Okay, only people that know this can do it. Otherwise, it's it's too complicated. I appreciate that, you know, from a a common sense standpoint, well, yeah, anyone can back up. Um, It's just really hard and you're you're probably going to fail. So I I, I think that, again, just it plays to the design velocity of complexity forward. You know, let's give every option, every opportunity to to make sure people can do what they want. I think they could have sanded that down just a little bit and been okay. But hey, that's, that's backseat design. You know, it's a game that came out two decades ago. Gaming itself has changed a lot since then. You know, for a product of its time, they took some risk. I think some of them worked really well. I think others, uh, you're not going to see those emulated in a modern game. Yeah, I think a modern game that implements a lot of the ideas, and I think we'll talk about that um, in a little bit, is uh, Song of Ice and Fire. Um, and we can talk about that more. But you're right. I think there's a lot of concepts here that, um, you know, modern day, we're a lot more interested in streamlining and games that are 90 minutes to two hours. So the direction that they went and this game i think was more designed for like a nice leisurely three or four hour uh, engagement with your buddy the one thing though that you did say maybe that should have just been a special role for for that particular clan um in first edition it was uh <laughs> same with the oblique movement for lion clan which is your favorite clan yep. um and uh 
but what they did and it, I, I would actually say if you want to get a good slow start, start with first edition rolls because it came in little pieces. They, uh, But I think based upon the feedback and because they add a little bit of complexity with each expansion, they just released the, the Demio version, which is the combination of a, a plethora of books that came out during the first edition time. And they changed a few things based upon the feedback, which is, Make all maneuvers uh, available to all clans, but just give them a heavy penalty. So uh, I, I still have, I'm of two minds of it, uh, because I still see the Lion Clan as being the only clan that can do the bleak movement. I don't think the Scorpion or the Crane, but if you play Demio Edition, both of those other clans can do it. So I'm of two minds about that between first and second edition. I don't know what they were doing there. I mean, I, I definitely see your point on that, Owen. I think... I think, practically speaking, you're not going to want to do those maneuvers if you're not the right clan, uh, because you blow your activation if you fail the roll. So yeah. You'll do nothing. So, like, if I'm not Haruma, if I'm not Crab, I really don't want to try a Haruma withdrawal. If I'm not Lion, I don't really want to try Oblique Movement, unless unless I've got some master plan in mind and I'm ready to use some kind of modifiers um, for the maneuver roll to do it. Uh, it's not going to happen. So they, they gave people the option, but it's not a great option. Yeah, I, I think it just comes down to, in a game this complex, particularly with new players, I do see a real risk of analysis paralysis in difficult situations. But uh, let's uh, let's keep on moving. Walter, what else would you like to talk um, uh, The ring, uh, the ring effects. Um, uh, but before I do, I do want to say another great concept of Clan War, and you can download it off the Clan War Facebook page if you're not lucky enough to have... The, uh, one of the starter box sets is the uh, cheat sheets that came with it, has all the maneuvers, unit conditions, turn sequence, and has the page associated with it so you, you wouldn't have to spend a, a lot of time uh, looking through the, the rulebook board. You'd be able to see that the, the withdrawal is on page 76, and you can go right to it. That's, that's one thing that I will praise the makers of Clan War above anything else is they make it they make it easy to be able to find various roles instead of having to, to slog through uh, a rule book without an index. So I mm-hmm. uh, just wanted to point that out. You can get that off the Clan War Facebook page. Sorry, Walter, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just want to interject and say we'll, uh, we'll link that in the show notes for people so it's easy for them to find. Okay, perfect. I know that in the, the very first episode... Uh, about this uh there was some discussion about the uh, the various different uh, um ring values uh, when you look at um the profiles for for a, a character versus a unit uh the character has extra ring values um the unit itself is pretty sim- simplistic it just has a wound attack modifier damage modifier and a strike and your ATN, which is what you need to roll to be able to hit. And then you have your training morale. But I think it was the ring values, which was, you know, what's the purpose of them? Well, the I think the first thing, uh, if you look back during that time frame, they were trying to link some of their properties together. So they utilized the ring values heavily in the role-play game. So one way the so that you could port over your roleplay character if you so chose uh, uh, 
they made it easy through the ring values and uh, to be able to convert it over to the clan war miniatures. And then also on the back of the book, it'll, it also allowed you to make um, your own general. If you just want to make one on the sly and say, this is, this is my general, here's the ring values because he has so much earth. This is how many wounds he has because he, you know, void, etc. But another thing that I think that, um, you can utilize for the ring values is let's say that you have a higher earth than you do your void. You do duels through voids, and then you can kind of try to take out your opponent's uh, character who you know has a high void value, which is what you would do for a duel. But you could say, okay, we have to use the earth value, and he has a lower earth, so I have more of a chance of taking him out this way. So being able to port over uh, for characters, being able to port over your role play character over to clan war or vice versa, being able to make a, 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 um, a clan war general or a character for yourself, which to be honest, it, it's one of those things. It's a nice concept and I'm glad it's there, but have I ever used that? No, I haven't, <laughs> but it's there if I wanted to, to, to be frankly honest, but more importantly, you could play with the, the ring values to, you know, you know, you're facing crane that have high void, uh, or dragon, so you're you're gonna stack your cards to where you can use an other ring value to duel them and try to kill. Them. And also, you can uh, you also have a the concept of to go along with your void. You can utilize spend void points to you know to get special abilities depending on how many void effects that you decide to use throughout the game as well. Like giving yourself a, a plus two or plus one damage, or modify your your morale. So there there's some uses for it, but for the bulk of your army, those values aren't there. You're ranking tall. Uh, so it's, it makes the characters a little bit more in-depth, but keeping the overall effect of the rank and file at a, uh, I wouldn't say simplistic, but a simpler manageability uh, to be able to do. So they, they separated the two. Right on. Brian, anything to add? Uh, um, I think, you know, if you look, if, if you're starting off the game and you look at the um, profile card or force card for a personality, because again, like Walter said, it, it, units do not have rings. Um, but mm-hmm. personalities, you look at that and you're like, what are these five other numbers? Um, and that could maybe be seem a little overwhelming. But, but at the end of the day, they don't come up all that often. Um, and if you look at um, the rule book, they give you an explanation of they apparently actually use them and kind of a, a matrix. So, for example, with the air ring, they say the personality's air value modifies their attack target number, attack modifier when performing a non-magical ranged attack, and limits the maximum number of spell scrolls that he may use during a battle. So they do that math under the hood for you, though, because their attack value, their target number value, and all that is printed separately. So they were using it almost like a profile, like in a Warhammer profile, where you'd have the you know the old chart where you're like, all right, weapon skill three, so I hit on a three plus, right? Same thing here. I think like air skill four, so my shooting is a plus, you know, is a plus three or whatever. So they had that, but you didn't have to know it. A place that you would want to know about the, the rings is, as Walter said, you've got void, which can be used as a resource uh, to do some different things, uh, sometimes some very important things like modify morale checks, which is a big deal. 
um, and you have those other things like earth or fire that you could use to substitute out for certain kind of dual cards depending on the strengths of your army and um, in addition earth was used to um, everybody loves charts earth was used to create a chart uh, that you did have to look up to to look up your resistance value for spells but one thing it did do as well is it did allow for um it allowed for a granularity in creating the units and providing that character to the different clans so for example the crab army you might not notice it right away but they all have high earth values which means they're resistant to magic more resistant mm -hmm. than the average clan so again it's not a lot that you need to front load mentally um, but it did, it did have some functions and there are some things especially void that you want to be aware of when you're playing it yeah, I would uh, I would say that you know Mia Culpa, I definitely glossed over the dual thing. So thanks, Walter, for that that correction. That, that that absolutely is a useful thing. To to Brian's point, I think my first reaction was okay. These are all either under the hood intermediate stats or derived stats. Why do these need to be separated? I think some of its presentation they take up a non trivial part of all the cards in the Daimyo edition and the printed cards you you get. I think in a more modern game, you'd have the Olympics logo with numbers overlaid over them and, and a corner somewhere, and you'd use it when you need to, which isn't often, and then otherwise you'd ignore it and you'd have your information more front and center. I don't really have a whole heck of a lot to add to, to what's been said. Yeah, I, I do I do see some use here. To me, it's more of a stat check thing. They're corner cases. Uh, having played around with building armies, I think the other thing, when I was coming to this, I was initially thinking there'd be a lot more characters in the game than there are. You're looking at... And please correct me if I'm wrong here. Typically, two to three characters in a two thousand point game is is that that reasonable? I would say yes. And yeah, you're going to use the leadership packages, the cheap leadership packages for most yeah. units, and you're going to take a couple of um, characters. In fact, if I could say something, I would you know maybe want to see different about the game is some of the a lot of the bigger characters that are you know famous and well loved are too expensive to field a regular <laughs> two thousand point army. <laughs> Um, so, for example, like Hida Kasada is over 500 points. He's like the big bad daimyo of the Crab Clan. You're gonna either, you know, you're building your list around him uh, at 2,000 points, or you're gonna want to play a bigger game. Other than that, you know, like yeah, the the idea that you have these stats for duels and a couple other things is is a neat addition. But um, it's it does start to get you know, for me anyway, a little bit into that rule bloat where it's you know adding extras on extras on extras. Um, Drawing, you know, a comparison a little bit to Battletech, you know, uh, sometimes uh, going into certain games of Battletech, you're talking about, you know, well, which rules are we using and which rules are we not using at this point? You know, like, what are we doing to kind of streamline yeah. the game? You know, like some of these, you know, you might be able to cut back on a little bit to at the very least make the game a little bit more approachable for new players. I think uh, if this was a modern game, and this probably ties into Brian's next point, you might see something like personalities, the, the game term for characters, have ring values and then some sort of, of bare minimum number of stats so they can make attacks or help their unit out, but maybe a tr otherwise trimmed down profile like something like A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, I, I do think, it, again, I appreciate the level of granularity that they went with. It, it's great playing this as a casual, fun game retroactively. I think if this level of complexity was in a modern game, I, I'm imagining what would happen if Warhammer 40k had a rule set as complex as this and just the gnashing of teeth and confusing and rules exploits people would find and how much of a headache and nightmare that could become playing with strangers in a local game store. Anything else anyone wants to add before we move on to the next one? On the uh, Trial Rogue Trader, 
playing 40k. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think this was a streamlined compared to that because I, I started off with Rogue Trader, but uh, I will say with the with them being a business, I think uh, we're looking at it from a miniature perspective. But if you looked at some of the role play module books, they would have like, you know, the, the end of the, the module is this huge battle. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, by the way, this is how you'd port your stuff over to Clan War, get X amount of models if you want to. And you could just recreate the, the thing. So I think they were approaching it from a business standpoint of let's try to sell models from a miniature or from yeah. a uh, role playing perspective. We could get the role players into the uh, miniature game, and, and then we could try to get the miniature or the war gamers playing game, having that available. So, yeah, a couple things I would say. First of all, um, you know, this interesting. This question of modernity and complexity is interesting because I think it's gone cyclically. Like, and not to get down the 40k rabbit hole, but but current ninth edition 40k is very difficult rules wise. Like the basic rules of the game, you need to have you need to have your uh, codex with your special rules. You've got um, probably somewhere upwards of 30 different stratagems that you now spend your tactics points on. You see your command points, which is a resource you have to you have to monitor. If you play a, an army like Thousand Suns, not only do you have command points, but you also have arcane points for your spells. You've got to look at the um, the battleground um, supplements that they've come out with. For the different campaigns, then you've got their match play rules, which are changing every three months and have different things on the. Um, so you're looking at so even though back when they launched eight, and they're like you know four pages of rules, and you're like oh that's pretty cool. Um, that's not the situation anymore, and it's come all the way back around. So you know things things ebb and flow on that 40k front. It's it's a bit of a that's a slippery. That's a, that's a, some quicksand discussion area there, and, and I, I actually you know I hope they will come back to something more 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 streamlined. I will say this, just like Walter said, Clan War, the fact that Clan War exists is kind of insane, right? And if you think about it, <laughs> if you think about it, it's it's a lot like Rogue Trader, actually, Walter's a great point, because if you look back at Rogue Trader 40K, it was essentially a role-playing game converted into a tabletop miniatures battle, and they even wanted you to have a Game Master in the original rules. Like, a Game Master would basically design the scenario, set up the terrain, maybe even create the armies, and the two sides would play. It was not designed as a competitive tournament game at all. In this case, this company, and and probably like those guys at Games Workshop when they first wrote Rogue Trader, I guess they had written Warhammer Fantasy Battles, this company had no experience whatsoever in miniatures games. Knew how to make mm-hmm. a card game. Knew how to write an RPG. And some mad bastard just decided, like, what if we create a game that's meant to go head-to-head against Warhammer Fantasy with Magical Samurai? And what if we have one guy who I don't know that he's ever written any other miniatures rules in his life or since do all the writing? You go to credits, written by Ken Carpenter. That's it. Written by anybody else. So the, and then they're like, let's spend thousands and thousands of dollars on hundreds and hundreds of molds for, for all these miniatures <laughs> and launch this puppy because, you know, profit is going to ensue. And, and yeah, I mean, this is their first attempt to create this kind of game. That they had no experience doing uh, a very risky proposition. They spent who knows how much money to create all those molds and get all those figures sculpted and everything. Um, so yeah, it's definitely got uh, rough edges. It's not the product of a company that knew how to create these games, make them streamlined. It's not the product of a whole bunch of writing. I don't think anybody tried to take editorial control over Ken Carpenter and tell him he had to murder his darlings. 
right? To make this more streamlined. Nobody said that to him. So yeah, that's what it is. Well, I mean, I, I, w- I would say two things. One, if we're talking about uh, quality game design and balance, I, I would not mention 9th Ed 40K in, in that sentence. <laughs> um, you know, a game whose balancing factor is, sorry, you're not allowed to 3D print these unit profiles because otherwise the game breaks, is, 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 is not in a great state. Um, so so I, I, don't, I try not to criticize game companies. G- games Workshop, I feel like half the hobby of being a GW fan is criticizing GW, so I'm, I'm just engaging in my, that portion of the hobby. I, I would say in terms of Clan War, I mean, it's wild. The, the 90s were such a strange time for miniature wargaming. Obviously, historical wargaming has been around for a long time. That's when that was really growing up. But I look at a company like AEG, who, if, if I was a banker and you came to me and said, hey, we're gonna, we need a business loan to start printing cardboard cards to compete with this obscure product from a small company in Washington that is hooking teenagers by the dozen into spending all their disposable income. We're going to compete successfully with that with a team of a small number of people. And then we're going to build a role-playing game off of that. And then after that, uh, we'll do this other weird thing where we, you know, injection, or not injection, but, you know, uh, spin cast lead miniatures and, and sell them to people for massive... It, it, the entire thing was crazy. Nothing made any sense. People were drinking too much Mountain Dew. There was too much Limp Bizkit on the radio. I, 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 yeah, it, it's it's incredible. Any of this happening is it happened, and you know, two decades on, we're talking about it. But uh, but here we are. If we could go back in time, we'd all buy all the Apple, so- Apple and Microsoft, uh, Facebook, and you know, stock that we could have in you know, nineteen ninety-eight. Uh, <laughs> so this would be low on our low on our scale of priorities. This is true, but. Um... Speaking of priorities, let's get back to the priority at hand. Uh, Brian, what else would you like to uh, yes, discuss? Yes, so speaking of time travel, I wanted to compare the game to modern designs um, like Song of Ice and Fire or Age of Sigmar um, because although I would agree with you, Owen, that uh, they are much more streamlined, mostly, there was a lot um, There was a lot in this game that reminds me of, of those designs. Um, so in some ways, I think it was ahead of its time. As a product, it clearly had its roots in Warhammer fantasy, flank and flank, maneuver fantasy. Um, you know, you've got rules on how to turn left and turn right. That all comes out of the historical uh, miniatures with like Napoleonics or even ancients, right? To have the form, mm-hmm. those formed units, and they they're not able to just you know do whatever you want, spin around you know on a, on a circular axis and end up placing you know pointing any direction you want them to. So I think that um, you know, compared to something like A Song of Ice and Fire, there's a lot of similar um, ideas. So, for example, you've got political actions, the special orders phase, um, and you've got cards, uh, the tactics cards that can affect your actions, allow you to do things you wouldn't normally be able to do, boost your attacks, etc. Song of Ice and Fire has those things. They've got the, the, the they call it the tactics board. Um, and the non-combat units go up there. And so instead of Bayushi Kachiko shaming a unit of dragon so that they uh, become spent and can't fight that turn, instead, um, you know, Cersei Lannister goes on to the crown uh, and uh, crown zaps a unit for a morale check and they lose three models, right? Similar idea. And you also have a, a, a deck of cards, much simpler and more, more made easier um, to manage for new players by Song of Spire. Because so to contrast this, at this point, Claymore has I think a hundred different cards that you can put in your tactics deck, and there's very few limitations about which cards you can take. So that's a that's a, a hurdle or barrier to entry for new players. Like, what the hell do I do with my tactics deck? 
um, over time you're going to learn that there's some cards that are much better than others. Some are really situational. That it's much simpler for you in Song of Ice and Fire because you've got basically a deck of 14 that you'll always have. And then depending on who your general is, you get six more. Mm -hmm. Come with the generals. It's my only two. Am I playing Targaryens? Yes. Who's my general? It's Daenerys. Which one? Because <laughs> there's more than one Daenerys. But yeah, so it's Daenerys, the Unburnt. Here's her six cards. Boom, you're ready. So there were there are things about it that um, you know I think it could be much more streamlined. But as we just talked about 40k, Age of Sigmar also does have now in its most recent iterations um, good amount of complexity to it. And this is what I was saying about these um, when we say a modern design is less complex. It really depends on what you're talking about. Um, Age of Sigmar now has command points, which is a resource you have to spend, kind of like the void points. Every unit has special abilities. Um, then you have your detachment rules and abilities that you can take, uh, sub-factional abilities, and um, you know it, it can become quite a lot. Uh, you also now have a scenario system that requires you to track different kinds of victory points for different kinds of um, missions every turn, different objectives that you have. And um, there can be a lot of bookkeeping in a modern design. So not the the you know the the dense and you know not well organized um not you know supremely well edited rulebook notwithstanding uh if you if you step back and objectively look at some of the modern designs they are you know probably around the same amount of complexity but they probably benefit from much better writing and summarization yeah i think that's uh that's fair walter anything to add to that no i think he covered it pretty pretty well in that regard uh i i think that the, like for clan wars, for the fantasy base and the original Warzone, you, you see a lot of those core concepts from from those games that have uh, been refined in uh, later iterations of different games and then all the way up to quote-unquote modern games. So I do think that, you know, even though clan war does have uh, a lot of similarities to the fantasy, Warhammer fantasy, I think they had enough unique designs that have bled over into other game systems that, that they owe uh, some gratitude to this game as well. Right on. Chris, you want to stop through this one off or should I uh, just jump into it? I think it's tough. I mean, when we're talking about complexity in games, um, I, th I think there are some games that are that are still very complex uh even to today and i do think that the that there's games that are less complex but i think that overall like the the trend has been to being um more approachable in the way that a lot of and that things are organized uh for a lot of games um both in like the way that you know keeping stats a little bit more to a minimum keeping basic you know keeping basic rules a little bit smaller and shorter there's definitely a lot more games that i've seen where that like that intro rule book is very short where it's it's not a very long thing um i think eden is a great example where eden uh they actually have a rule card that's basically an index card that's front and back that covers the majority of things in the actual game, and the rest of the stuff primarily comes up on your uh, your model's card. I think you know some other games are in very similar kind of spots with that. Um, as just an overall design philosophy, you know, like uh, Star Wars Legion, Marvel Crisis Protocol, um, even like Dark Age and things like that. And it's not it's not that it's it's taking away from the playability of the game um, or the tactics used or um, how competitive or balanced they are. I think it's just a um, 
a trend now, and this is with years of experience and looking back, you know, of taking some aspects of like, okay, these couple of things worked really cool. Let me take these couple of things and smooth down the rest, you know? Um, and some games, you know, sometimes can swing a little bit to the point where they're too simplistic for some people. I <laughs> I know we're going to get the hate mail for this one, but um, I uh, one of our friends, Bobby, had uh, had brought up the idea of, you know, the ideal starter war game for people was Wrath of Kings because Wrath of Kings, while it did have some complexities to it and it did definitely have some areas that you could run into, like you could demo the game for large groups of people who had never like hadn't played a board game beyond Monopoly. And, um, you know, within minutes, they understood the core concepts of the game and they could easily figure out pretty much everything else on their own. And uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, part of this is personal preference. I think part of this is, um, you know, some people want a more complex game. You know, people still love games like Clan War and Battletech, you know, today. Some people clamor for, like, a little bit more complexity in certain things. But it doesn't really seem to be the way that, that the overall industry as a whole has kind of switched to. Um, especially for games that have larger followings. I think it's it's always tough to look at both 40k and Age of Sigmar or what used to be Warhammer, because those have such a built-in inroad. Um, they're so established that no matter what they do, they'll always have a crowd. Um, you know, and and just looking back to some of the years, I mean, there were a solid like six to ten years, I'd say, between, you know, 40k the end of fifth edition into right before eighth edition where like GW was known for treating its players like garbage. Like and they had the worst like customer support, business acumen. They were suing people left and right. You know, it was Napster era Metallica. It was the worst. Um and but like people still play because every game store has Warhammer. Every game store or every game store has 40k. Every game store has Age of Sigmar. Every convention, the biggest events always for these game systems and it, i think more than anything else a lot of that just goes into not whether the game is good or the game um is complex or it's not complex it's much more of i want to play something that i can play games with people on you know because the greatest game in the world doesn't mean anything if you can't find an opponent and i think that's that's a lot of the driving force there so they can kind of just do whatever they want and they'll be fine and i think you know especially given the quality of their models and how good they look that got off on a bit of a tangent. Before we jump back over to the Walter, um, I, I would say I think Brian hit a lot of this on the head in terms of the level of ask for a player to play a game of Clan War as per the full rules relative to a modern game. I would not say that AOS is a less complex game necessarily. It's possible to buy an army book and the core rules or download the core rules for free and play, but... Anyone who actually plays that game knows you need the current competitive season and the, you know, four or five supplements where, you know, Marathi and all the other characters got slightly tweaked. And if you have allies, if you're playing a Chaos faction, the Demon Codex to go with Nurgle or Slaves to Darkness and blah, 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 it can get complex real fast. Um, I do think that, and we talked about this last time, Clan War was designed in an era where the expectation was a player would go to a store and play one game in an afternoon leisurely 
I think that's a little bit different than the modern expectation of I can bang out three games or four games in a day at a tournament. I don't think that one is necessarily better than another. I think it comes down to what people like. But as someone that plays a lot of different games, I tend to like the ability to play a game in a reasonable time. I do think, to your point, some of it was clarity of writing and presentation, but I do think there was just different design goals on on the product. But having said all that, uh, Walter, let's uh, let's talk about your next item. Kind of talk about uh, the maneuvers and uh, the movement to within Clan War. One thing that I thought was unique because when I first looked at the the game, I was like, you know, here's cavalry. You know, they they move at what, four or five inches. You know, so how are they cavalry? You know, and you know if you're going to be moving, there's no mechanic for for running per se. You know, how are you going to get this huge block across the, the board and be able to do maneuver tests to try to outflank things? But then as you kind of dive down into the game, it has uh, uh, some unique maneuver, uh, movement characteristics. So you, you have a primary uh, maneuver phase that pops up, and that's where you get like a free uh, maneuver. So if you want to, you know, turn right or, you know, do a will or you, you could do it during the primary movement phase. And it, you don't have to take a test for it unless it's like a overly complex, you know, oblique movement if you're a non-line clan. And then after that, you have a cavalry movement. So not only do the cavalry move during the primary movement, they also move during the cavalry movement phase, right? And then at the uh, the end or towards the end, uh, after the range attacks, the close combat attacks. If you're more than 12 inches away from any other enemy unit, then you have reserve movement. So all your your units outside of 12 inches from a enemy can move again. So you have three chances or two chances if you're infantry, three chances uh, if you're cavalry to move during a particular phase, depending on how close or how far away you are from the enemy. And then the that would lead into uh, maneuvers, being able to try to position your, with all these different maneuver phases, being able to position your your troops into uh, uh, being able to flank your, your opponent or uh, maybe even try to do a surprise in, in the fact of doing an oblique movement if you're lying or if you're, you know, or had a couple of shots of gin think that you can do it if you're a, if you're a, a crab clan but the thing though when you do do a maneuver and you contact with the enemy unlike some of the other games that you see now as soon as you touch an enemy you just go ahead and lock and adjust the the two blocks you know head to head here you have to be within 45 degrees um, in order for it to be a successful charge Right, and then when you lock them into place, it's literally right where they're at. So they could be off kiltered, and then at the end of the combat, then you can shift each unit can shift uh, one in. And what that does is that'll allow more attacks to get in. So what's the 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 whole thing that I like about everything? I kind of gave a a very high level point of view from is just like the initiative phase and you have to think through what you want to do you have to think about the next turn you you know am i going to be able to make that charge am i going to be able to get my reserve movement because i'm getting pretty close to my enemy so to me 
and I, I'm not making light of any anybody's game system that they like because all the game system except for AOS, which I've never played. I was a Warhammer Fantasy guy. Uh, I've played all those games, and I enjoy a lot of those games except for the newer editions of 40K. But I think it has more of a chest fill versus a checkers fill where, you know, you, you have to really think ahead. You have to think tactically and uh, ahead to be able to win it. There's not a alpha army per se, or at least not one I've ever faced. As long as you can outmaneuver, outthink your opponent, and you have a fairly balanced list, you stand a good chance of winning. Uh, so I I see Clan War more so than any other war games that, that I play is, you know, uh, the, uh, the equivalence of a war gamer's chess game versus, you know, when I want to play Horus Heresy, which I do love, is more of a checkers type game. Uh, so to me, the complexity is not overly much for Clan War, it's just enough to give me that feel of having to think through what do I need to do and what do I need to do in next turn instead of saying, I'm going to take these four units, shoot all four units at this one unit, and because I have the weight of dice on me, I should be able to take that unit out. Right on. Well said. And uh, before I, I rush over to the Discord and start making a uh, Virgin AOS Chad Clan War meme, uh, Brian, anything to add to this? <laughs> Yeah, um, I think the game can seem like the, the units are pretty slow. Um, and one of the reasons is that you don't have, unless you are in the Lion Clan, you don't have an inherent charge ability that doubles your movement. So in old Warhammer, you'd go double speed if you made a charge move. Just any everybody could do that. Um, in the new Warhammer systems, you roll, um, you roll, what is it, two dice, I think. You roll two dice and add your movement to that to see how far you go. So you can sometimes fail, sometimes you, you'll make it but you're going to go more than your base movement um, in this game once you get within 12 inches you feel they're going to be kind of moving slowly unless you're cavalry who get to move twice because um, for that there's a reserve movement phase as well so you will get across the table but you're going to want to have the tactics cards and you may also want to have um, the option to make your unit a cavalry unit by using a spell like windborne speed um, there are uh, and the other thing about movement is that the uh, terrain is punishing. The general terrain will double your movement cost, so woods, hills also makes, makes you uh, pay double. And there's something, a, a nightmarish monstrosity called uh, the linear obstacle, which um, <laughs> has like, you know, it costs a number of inches, two inches per rank of your unit. So, like, if you have a four rank unit, it'll take, you know, what is that, four times two? Eight, it, it'll take. You know, it'll take you four turns to cross that thing. So, you know, I've we definitely put in a few house rules into play. Number one, the deployment zone recommended in the book is eight inches deep onto the table. We've made it 12 inches. So we get to each other mm -hmm. earlier, and there's one less turn of, you know, maybe some desultory bow fire doing something. Um, and I don't think that 12-inch change really would, um, would hurt, like, a shooty army like the Crane too much, because at that range, they're, only if you just roll a bunch of exploding tens are you going to do anything. But uh, yeah, I would say there is movement in the game, but you, you've got to look for it and be aware of it. Um, otherwise, it's going to seem like you know they don't move uh, much, as, certainly not as like a modern game like Song of Ice and Fire, um, but even compared to Warhammer Fantasy. Now, the one thing I, I, 
I think for the listeners that that uh, needs to be made clear is when this was written, just like Warhammer 40k, Warhammer Fantasy uh, Battles, it was written for a four by eight table. Now you, you know, most people think that a big gaming table is a four by six, and now we're bringing it down to four by four. Back in the nineties, the 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 table size was four by eight, so you have to put that in context when you're thinking about the maneuverability within this game that it was envisioned to be played on a four by eight table. Well said, and thanks for the info. I actually, I I always thought four by six because you're given the option of four by six or four by eight. But uh, good to know the historical context. I I don't really have a whole lot to add here. I I definitely think that the multiple options to move is a really interesting and unique thing about the game. I'm excited to try it out, but uh, I think everything else said uh, makes a lot of sense. Chris, anything to add before we move on to the next one? No, I think uh, that pretty much hits it. Cool. Uh, Brian, what do you got? So I think I, I had uh, talked about the ways in which it sort of was a predecessor to certain modern designs, especially Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, I think there was a comment made in the original podcast that you guys had um, where, oh, and you were not like too impressed by the range. And I think, unfortunately, that was a misconception in terms of uh, the depth of the range that was available. Now I have to put an asterisk on that because the emphasis on the word was, right? Um, so there were, and there certainly still are, uh, there, there were a lot of the starter boxes that came out first edition and then second edition, but a lot more of the first edition boxes, because you can find the first edition boxes still pretty easily for a good price. And you can get yourself a chunk of like 50 samurai and eight characters for not a bad price, um, metal samurai. And they're still pretty good sculpts. They hold up. But because that was the first thing that pretty much everybody bought, uh, it sort of looked like that's what everybody, you know, everybody kind of looked the same. Their armies looked the same. Um, but uh, to be fair, there were a, a pretty wide variety of SKUs for each of the armies and a bunch of specialized troops. So it's easy to find now those basic troops, uh, which at the same time, like the game was first starting, probably everybody had and probably made people's armies look kind of similar. But in the end, if you go and, and really check out the range of blister packs that were available for each clan, especially getting into Daimyo Edition, uh, there was there were quite a number, maybe five or six, maybe more specialized troops in addition to those base box troops that you could use to represent um, all different kinds of things. Um, not just Ronin, but you could paint them up uh, to be, you know, like a medium or a heavy infantry for the clans themselves. So um, there were a lot of cool sculpts. I've been able to, lucky enough to collect some of the dragon um, guys who you could easily proxy with... Uh, modern day or alternate manufacturer uh, warrior monks, the Sohei. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the dragon tends to run around bald, uh, whereas Japanese Sohei tended to wear like a white uh, kind of kerchief or, or cowl on their head. Um, but yeah, so you can find them. They're fun to find if you can put together a unit of a dozen or so, or just even get a hold of a blister pack of that specialized troop type, let's say Haruma archers, and then sprinkle them into some of the basic box archers you can give them a distinctive appearance. But at the time the game was out, uh, there really was, I think, a good variety. Um, after you know a couple of years, there was a really good variety um, of miniatures available. The challenge now is finding them if you want the original sculpts, which I have a friend, one of my local guys in Northern Virginia, is like a fanatic for metal, and not just metal, but OG metal. So he just wants to collect the original Clan War sculpts, and it's going to cost him. But there are there's a lot of manufacturers out there, uh, like Warlord, uh, Perry Miniatures and many others, the Bushido game, 
that you could draw on. Uh, for example, the Bushido uh, characters um, for the Minamoto clan all have Tetsubo, so they make great uh, proxies for Crab. So there are a lot of options, but again, getting a hold of the specialized troops nowadays is challenging. Right on. Walter, anything to add? Any, any insight into uh, good proxies for Clan War if you can't get the OG stuff? Oh, one that I use, and because I, I haven't, I don't have a box handy. Was it Xena? Uh, yep. As a company, yep. Uh, they they uh, make some really good uh, um, models that you can use as proxies, especially for. Uh, uh, they have some excellent pikemen. They have some ninjas that are really good that you can use for your scorpion clan as well. So they're they're kind of my primary go to for uh, buying any proxy models. And they, by the way, just want to give a shout out to Zenit. Um, the game I just played on Sunday with my friend using his Shadowlands for the first time, he had uh, their undead cavalry, uh, to, skeletal cavalry to represent the Lost Moto, which are very hard sculpts to find from the Unicorn Clan. Uh, those are really nice, and they're they're right to scale. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that that scales well with the, the original stuff. That's uh, that's good to know. I know sometimes I I've got some Warlord stuff that. Yeah, it, it's close enough. I'm not really a scale queen, but I, I do know some people are, are very particular. So good to know. Um, I, I'll stand by my initial look at the range. It's fine. That's always going to be a subjective thing. I do think there were some really, really well done samurai and um, court model characters. I think the dragon stuff was really well done. Some of the crane stuff was really well done, but there was a lot that maybe it's just the paint jobs in the rule book. Maybe it's just my own personal taste. I... It wouldn't be the first thing I would buy if I had options in a uh, more current game for its time. I think they did fine, though. There were some pretty well-known sculptors like Bob Ollie um, that were involved. A guy named Bob Charette out of Northern Virginia did a lot of the sculpting. Um, but it's funny because you go back and look through, the. there's a lot of people that you'll notice. Bobby Jackson, Julie Guthrie, Ben yep. Scenes, probably getting their start. Sandra Garrity, people getting their, at that time, probably those folks, Tim Prow, getting their start, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're right, there was a... There was a wide variety of quality, and not to mention that scale. Um, the the Issei Zumi, the tattooed men of the dragon, are gigantic uh, compared to certain guys. The crab berserkers, they're, they're in a crouching mode, but if they were standing up straight, they'd look to be about seven feet tall. So there was definitely, <laughs> there were definitely a wide variety of sculpts in terms of quality. I will say one thing about the rule book. If you flip through the rule book or any of the publications, it just, you want to scream at these folks for like, could you please just, learn to use a wash <laughs> all you gotta do is give these guys a little like a flesh wash or a colored wash for their armor and oh man please just do it i mean that's definitely a sign of the times though because like if you look back at that time period like washes this was before null oil like <laughs> this was before like washes were a widely accepted thing yeah. you know? i remember gw had those glazes and none of us knew how to use them we're all like what is this glaze so like like a go on a donut it goes on a donut i think i don't know <laughs> but yeah these guys are thirsty for a wash in the book i'll tell you i do think that there's some sta- like some standout sculpts um you know at the time i know uh when Owen and i recorded i had some trouble like thinking back of like man like what was like a really good one um you know and i i think i had given like uh tagashi kuni or like Hida yakumo because those were big models and i was fans of the character but i think specifically if you like look back at the yojimbo pack um of the bodyguards they were really well sculpted samurai especially for the time but like they had more details um to them and a little bit like more uh well sculpted areas than a few of the other models especially the uh the one with the larger nodachi and also the um 
Kita Yakimo, I think, as as a uh, as a character model, especially more of the Hita Yakimo with the jade hand as opposed to Hita Yakimo with the, the crazy fucking crab claw were um, also just like very well done. You know, I don't think I've ever seen the jade hand sculpt of Yakimo. Um, I, I, everybody who ever bought the Crab Clan starter has the, the Crab Clan guy. Um, so I yeah. always have my, they'll always have a little special place in my heart because like the crab were like, were like the good guys gone bad at that precise moment in the lore, which I always thought was kind of mm-hmm. kind of like that. Maybe the only good scene in like that uh, Spider-Man uh, where he gets the Venom suit a movie, but like where you're like, oh, it's the good guy, but he's decided that he's done being good. <laughs> right on, Chris. Do you want to uh, take us through the three questions we ask all our guests? Sure. So we'll jump around a little bit here, but uh, Walter, what's your favorite dead war game um, other than Clan War? Uh, It is a toss-up between, I'd probably say between uh, Dark Age and, well, that's not, the night game's not technically dead, but uh, second edition uh, Warzone. Um, I I would say that that falls under a dead war game, um, because even though they're coming out, new game it's an entirely new game it's the older universe i was gonna say void 1.1 but there's still a company that supports it you can get the rules they're gonna come out with a new edition it's just not well known so yeah. i went to Warzone uh because i had that killed games workshop for me for uh during the 90s when i discovered it <laughs> interesting all right same question, uh, Brian. I was going to say, by the way, Warzone is like the eternally undead war game. It's like kind of dead, pretty much dead, but not quite. Somebody keeps bringing it back, but it's sort of immediately dying again. It's it's weird. Um, it's like the Frankenstein's, the Frankenstein monster of war games that can't get a break. Um, and I, say this, I, I assume it's because everyone gets into it, then sees the movie, and then then <laughs> <laughs> that's probably it. Um, I I think I'd have to say. Um, yeah, right now, other than Clan War, I'm really enjoying Wrath of Kings uh, quite a bit. I also really enjoy Battlefleet Gothic. I think that was a great design, a uh, really fun game that is uh, still pretty much dead. It may be res- maybe it'll be resuscitated one of these days, but it's dead at the moment. So, Walter, you know, do you think there's any uh, dead war games out there that you think people should know more about? Vor, uh, Into the Maelstrom. I'd love for y'all to do an episode of that. That is a that is a great game. It's a flash in the pan, but it was uh, it had a lot of unique mechanics. Uh, the initial rule book gave you uh, rules how to create your own faction for the Maelstrom. is fun, but the only caveat about the game is the races that they produced for that game, the name races, uh, they were matched up towards an, a specific other faction. So if you played... You know, uh, one faction, like the Shard, against the Neo-Soviets, the Neo-Soviets would get their asses handed to them because the Neo-Soviets were matched towards the Union. That's the only negative thing I can say about that game. But it's a game that I think people should check out. Right on. You will uh, probably get your wish for an episode sooner than than later. That is, uh, it's been on the short list for some time. Okay, cool. It has. So uh, what about you, Brian? Uh, any dead board game you think uh, more people should know about? In terms of like something you guys might want to talk about, it seems like, you, if I'm not mistaken, you kind of stay away from GW designs. We actually had a couple of GW episodes. Uh, we had a more time episode with uh, Ash Parker. Oh, 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 my bad. And we also had a, 
a uh, Inquisitor uh, oh. slash Necromunda episode with uh, Dave Taylor. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I would say then the Epic 40K rules were really fun. That was mm-hmm. a really good system. Uh, and another suggestion might be the 90s, uh, early, two, early, sorry, early 2000s Dungeons & Dragons Chainmail. That was a fun little game. Huh. So, uh, moving along, uh, Walter. <laughs> of course, Owen writes this, but, you know, what would you say is the most interesting clan in L5R? And in Owen's opinion, why is it not the Dragon's Clan? Well, uh, it's a tie for me. Uh, the Scorpion Clan and the Lion Clan. Uh, Scorpion oh. Clan, uh, because they're... They can do underhanded tricks. You can manipulate uh, other people's decks and uh, their characters. Uh, the Lon Clan is a good frontal assault type of army. has a lot of good sculpts. Dragon Clan, the reason why it's not the Dragon Clan is because they know a little bit of everything, uh, but they don't master anything uh, specifically compared to the other clans. Interesting. <laughs> so, Brian, same question. Uh, well, I yeah, I think the it is tough. Um, there are a lot of interesting clans. Uh, I like the Crab Clan the best, um, just because they are they are kind of like the uh, workhorse of the Empire, um, and to some extent the unsung hero because they man that um, Caillou Wall and they fight off the Shadowlands creatures, and uh, people all think of them as kind of like um, you know, brutish and uncultured. Um, but but they're they're there um, you know trying to protect the rest of the uh, society and they don't have a lot of time for a lot of the niceties and then as I alluded to earlier they do have an interesting phase at least one where they decide they've had enough of that nonsense and they're going to take over and they actually ally themselves uh, with the Shadowlands in an unholy alliance uh, that was very entertaining and makes for some very interesting troop choices in the clan war game system, uh, which is set either during or dying edition sort of right after um, that, that all happened. So you can you can game out that corrupted crab army that um, approaches the capital uh, city to try to take over. All right. So I do I do have to comment on Walters, though, because uh, personally, I do find the Lion Clan to be the most boring of all the clans. <laughs> Uh, I just like it, it. They're honestly so boring that when you're looking at the at the books, the, like the series for Clan War, the fiction books, half of the Lion book isn't even about the Lion. Uh, <laughs> half of it's about uh, the soon-to-be uh, Emperor uh, Tutori. So uh, yeah, no, they just they always seem you know like a lot of the other clans. It always seems have a lot more interesting stuff going on for them. And I'm also just super disappointed that neither one of you chose Mantis because Mantis is is the fun trick answer there. I, I want to say something, by the way, on behalf of the Dragon Clan. They're like my second favorite. I think they're very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, kind of like that emo kid who dyes their hair because there's nothing else that makes them interesting. They also are trying a little too hard to be interesting with their like we're hiding in the mountains and we like to shave our heads and we tattoo ourselves and we're edgy and mysterious. Like, okay, like we get it. You're edgy and mysterious. I still love them. To be fair, that's that's Owen's dig. That's Owen's dig at me because I do enjoy the dragon clan. Dragon and crab would be my favorite. But to be also to be fair, they were tattooing themselves with dragon blood. <laughs> like, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> Settle down, Brooklyn. We we get it. You got tattoos. You're cool. Now the Lion Clan, they have they they do have. Not, I'm not talking about the novels, but within Clan War, they they have a unit of 
Death Seekers, where they, they're part of uh, Totori's clan, and their whole concept is to die in battle. So they're, they're, you're, they go out there with no armor, you know, trying to kill as many enemies as they can, and just just so that they could die, so that they can get their honor back. Yeah. And then you also have lines that you can unleash upon your foe as well. Walter is absolutely right, though. As as much as you could kind of talk about how the, in the, in the maybe in the in the lore they're not as well developed as they could be on the table, they are a fun army. I played them. I played them somewhat, you know, quote unquote, competitively, whatever that meant in the early two thousands. And they are a smash mouth army in Clan War. They all have charge. They will come up to you and they will smack you in the face with heavy attack dice and heavy damage dice. So you've got to take them seriously on the tabletop. They are interesting. I I really enjoy all their like quit your nonsense abilities too. Um, that I, I always like armies that have a little bit of that denial flavor. And it seems like a good number of the personalities in Lion have the ability to say, yeah, no, you're not running away. Yeah, no, you're not using that fancy BS. Like, no, 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 let's fight. Fair. So <laughs> with all that being said, uh, Brian, uh, anyone you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, uh, going way back in time, uh, one of the playtesters, you can see his name, I think, incorrectly spelled in some of the in some of the publications, uh, Pete Orfanos, got me into the game out of the old, now defunct, Complete Strategist in Boston, and uh, gave me like a ridiculous discount on the starter box and the crab uh, starter box, uh, factions up box, so he got me into the game, so shout out to Pete Orfanos. Uh, Daria Winters helped me get the game back uh, in, in the local area. And my buddy, uh, Bill White, who I played with extensively uh, in the early 2000s uh, and who was codependent with me uh, as soon as I started buying more Clan War figures last spring. He's like, let's do this together. And I think we basically cleaned out Noble Knight. So that was good. (laughs) Walter, anybody you want to give a shout out to? Sure. Uh, Somebody that you've mentioned a couple of times in some of your past uh, podcasts, a gentleman named Shay. Uh, he's very active in the, quite a few different communities, Dark Age community, and uh, now the Horse Heresy community. He's extremely, he's the guy that you want to go to if you need any help with, and he'll always lend you a helping hand. So he's he's a valuable, valuable member of any community that he is a part of. Also, Aaron, he's the first person I found in Yankee Land uh, to play. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he'll go out of his way to help anybody. Uh, you know, he may be, he may have played a couple of games uh, and there's a couple of new people that come into the store and they want to, you know, get a demo and he'll, he'll, even though he probably wants to go home and go to bed, he'll give, uh, give a demo to him. So he's, he's extreme. Both of those gentlemen are extremely useful to, uh, to any community that they're a part of. And neither one of them work for any hobby stores. Both of it as out of their own kindness of their hearts and their love of the hobbies. Very cool. Right on. So this is where we uh, normally talk about events. Now, the last episode, we uh, we talked about Nova, but since that's tomorrow and uh, I'm not going to stay up all night and mix this to get it out uh, for tomorrow, I'm going to skip that one. Uh, Brian and Walter, do, do either of you have any uh, Clan War events or other uh, game events you wanted to uh, give a shout out to? Right now, um, I'm tied up into Horde's Heresy. It's a flavor of uh, Games Workshop of Ode, so I'm really enjoying that right now. Yoda Quest is doing a campaign for Horde's Heresy 
it's five round event and then you're gonna have 18 players doing all day battle nine loyalists nine traders there's also a podcast uh, that is hosting a uh, international campaign for horse heresy called the push to better garden uh, better garden i can't remember the last bit i'll ping you the thing so you can put it in the show notes where uh, people record their games uh, leading up to uh, I think Gen Con of next year to where it's going to go from the push to the battle of. And I just recently joined their Facebook uh, group so I could start recording my battles to to affect the huge game, the mega battle that they're going to do during, uh, I think, Gen Con. It's either Gen Con or Depticon. I have to double check. I just discovered it today. Those are the two, only uh, two events that, that uh, I'm tracking right now. Right on. How about you, Brian? Uh Yeah, so I reached out on the Facebook group to find out if anybody wanted to play Clan War with me at Historicon, and a gentleman named Tony Rogers came up. I think he was coming up for other reasons, too, but all the way from Texas to Lancaster, PA, and we played a great game of Crab versus Shadowlands. Fully painted, lots of pictures. I uh, put that battle report up on the Facebook group. Um, if you guys want me to barrage your uh, Clan War discord with the pictures from that one i'd be happy to do so he came up we had a great time and a gentleman came by from northern virginia like i mentioned earlier uh by the name of david who was wearing an l5r t-shirt several people came by uh, but he was from my area and said oh, i want to play and uh, he actually meant it um so he's joined our group and uh, we're now playing clan war basically every other week at huzzah hobbies in northern virginia so if anybody wants to get in touch with me via the facebook group um, then uh, be happy to try to loop you in or, or come meet you somewhere in the DMV area. And uh, in addition, uh, Bill White and I, I think between us and actually um, our other local players who are, uh, what's the nice way to put it, uh, avid collectors of miniatures like we are, probably going to have enough figures to put on some uh, convention games at um, HMGS East events like Fall In um, and Cold Wars and Historicon in the future. Nice. That's awesome, man. One thing I want to just throw out to uh, podcast land is now is the time to get events in for Captain Com, which is a convention that I, I hopefully actually will attend uh, this coming year. Chris had a grand old time last year, covered some events for me, which was uh, really, really helpful. But uh, Dan Start is going to be running a Dark Age event. I'll actually probably end up being the one that uh, physically runs it, but he has booked it, and that's, that's awesome. So if you want to come by and play some Dark Age, that's great. Uh, if People would like us to host other events. We are more than happy to. Uh, I've got plenty of terrain, plenty of mats. Uh, I can bring models if you're interested in just demoing something, but we're thinking of uh, hosting one or two events. So less a tournament, more just show up, play some games with people that are also digging the game. So if uh, folks out there in Discord land have anything they'd like to try out or play at CaptainCon, please give us a shout. Having said all that, I want to take the time to thank Walter and Brian again for your time, particularly doing this twice. We really appreciate it. Um, so thank you both for, for showing up. Before we go, I should mention that we have a Discord. We'll link that in the show notes. We also have a newsletter that I have totally been slacking on actually writing, but we're hoping to get that back up and running now that I'm in a new home. So just want to thank everyone for being here. And uh, yeah, this has been a really fun time. Thank you for setting us straight about Clan War. Thank you for having us. All right. Yeah, thank <laughs> yeah. you for having us. Oh, and Hida. <laughs> <laughs> So, with all that being said, uh, I'm Chris. I'm Owen. I'm Walter. And I'm Brian. Thank you for coming.
Intro music is Axe to Mouth by Pulp 45, which is Owen's old band. Outro music is Control My Fate by Adorexia, which is Chris's old band. All songs used with permission. If you like what you hear, please like or subscribe. Thanks.